This is HPR episode 2968 for Wednesday, the 18th of December 2019. Today's show is entitled The Life and Times of a Geek, Part 3, and it's part of the series How I Found Linux. It's hosted by Dave Morris and is about 41 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is Part 3 of my personal story of experiences with computers. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Hello everybody, this is Dave Morris. Welcome to Hacker Public Radio. I started a series of shows back in 2014. I was talking about my own personal experiences. I called it Life and Times of a Geek. Today I'm trying to put together episode 3 in this series. It's been a long process. I did one show in 2014, as I said, and one in 2015. There's been a long gap in between. And it was partly because I wanted to research the various things I was telling you about. And I found that looking for them on the on the internet was extremely difficult. Um, A lot of the things that I wanted to talk about were not there. And I think it's largely because these devices or people or places or whatever events were happened before the internet came into being. And have never really been transcribed to it. Uh, one one case I tried, there was some laboratory equipment I thought might be of interest, and I contacted the company, which still exists from 40-odd 40, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, and um, asked them about it, and they said that they had kept no records because it was equipment that they couldn't sell now for, for safety reasons. So it's been a bit of a dispiriting process, and it makes me feel very old, as I say in the notes here. But uh, it's something I've grasped and tried to finish off in the recent past, so this is the result of that. So in Manchester around 1973, I was a student, a PhD student, which is what I talked about in my last episode. I'm going to talk a bit more about this, and um, hopefully tell you some things of interest to hackers along the way. So when I went to Manchester to work as a PhD student, I I was mainly based in the animal house of the zoology department. This is in the basement of a building on Coopland Street. I just mentioned this in case you want to look look at the map of that area. It's part of the sort of main old Victorian university area. This is not an ideal location. Some of these buildings were quite old. They were connected by tunnels, utility tunnels, which had phone lines and heating pipes in them. And these tunnels 
were filled with cockroaches and mice and various other nasties. And they'd come into the animals, an ongoing battle to uh, keep these down. During my, I'd been second year there, another animal house became available in the same sort of region. And it had been previously owned by the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology called UMIST in those days. It's now been absorbed within, to, within Manchester University. This became free. Uh, it was on the top floor of what I think was called the Roscoe Building. So many of these buildings have changed use and been demolished in some cases. So I'm a little bit hazy about where it was. But it wasn't a huge distance away from where we were, across Oxford Road. And in it there were multiple rooms for offices and laboratory spaces and animal housing places for experimental apparatus. So it's really an advantageous move. And these were rooms that could be hosed down to, to clean, being purpose-built. This There was a fair amount of work moving across and uh, some of this involved my research apparatus so i'll tell you a bit about that now the thing about working in a biology department zoology department in those days was there was an expectation you'd be able to build your own apparatus so there was a workshop in the department some very skilled people who could build all manner of stuff but they were busy they were catering for staff and students through moderate-sized department. I did have some equipment built for me, which I won't go into detail about, but uh, but I also ended up making some of my own. First of all, I needed an arena in which my Barbary doves, my experimental animals, would be placed and, and I could observe their behaviour. There was a wooden arena available for, from a, a previous piece of research when I first started, but it wasn't all that useful because... In order to use it, you had to stand beside it, look through a one-way viewing window, and the bird that was inside, this thing would rustle. It could hear, it could hear me breathing, it could hear me moving, and hear the rustle of this thing, of the, the, the window, which was um, of a uh, one-way mirror, two-way mirror um, type thing. So wasn't brilliant. So I ended up building my own arena, and I used... Um, a metal angle thing with holes in it called Dexian. I put a reference to it in case you're interested. I did say in my footnote that I acquired some of this from my last job because it was being thrown out. So I've actually used it to build a shelving system up in my attic. It's really useful stuff. So what I built was an arena where the birds were placed, which was a, a metre square. And above it, I built a four-sided pyramid for observation and so I didn't want to actually be looking in there myself there was a viewing window in it but I didn't want to be looking in there while the bird was doing its thing so I had access to a monochrome video camera and that was mounted at the top of the pyramid much to my disappointment I couldn't point the camera downwards because it just stopped working when it got tilted that way I have no idea why so I had to set up a platform with it on and a 45 degree mirror the camera recorded stuff onto a reel-to-reel video recorder. So it's a sort of big half-inch tape device. I'm sure John Culp would be delighted to have access to such a thing. And in order to analyse the, the behavioural stuff, to grab the data from I had to play the tape back to a little black-and-white monitor that I had in a separate uh, working area. The arena was painted white, 
and the camera was looking down into it and there were fluorescent lights which shone onto the the white surface but didn't get in the way of the camera and uh, so that was to give best visibility and on the floor of this arena it's actually made of lino or something like that plasticky sort of surface painted white there were little feeding stations placed randomly around the floor and in each one of these stations the bird would find a, a metered amount of grain so i had a a copy of the plan of the arena floor in a in a form that could be duplicated so I could transcribe the movements of the bird and various other information about things that had been set up onto these once I was analyzing the uh, the videotape now I say just as a interruption here that one of the things I was trying to do while I was preparing this was to find pictures of some of this stuff and just yesterday, as I remember recording this, I found some slides that I'd taken of some of this equipment. So at the moment, I can't add them to the notes because they're 35mm colour slides. And I don't have any means of turning them into JPEGs or whatever. But before this show goes live, I plan to do the, the necessary scanning and uh, prepare stuff. So there are some pictures of some of the things I'm talking about. So another piece of experimental apparatus I was using was called a Skinner box. This is a, a chamber, it's also called an operant conditioning chamber. There's a link to the Wikipedia info, in which an animal is trained to perform some action in response to a stimulus. And then you can use it with the trained animal to... Um, produce behavior of, of interest to, to whatever it is you're studying. So the Skinner box is, I think we just had one, I can't remember now. But anyway, it consisted of a small box which had metal panel sides, probably aluminium sheets or something, and a transparent door which we could see see through. The wall opposite the door was fitted with, with um, a panel with perspex keys on it and there were two, and the bird was able to peck them, or one of them, and depending on how you wanted to operate things, this could this would operate a micro-switch, trigger a switch, and then you could make it deliver food to the bird because there was a, a place where a food hopper was set into the wall, and the bird could reach down and take food out of the hopper. But the hopper could move, it'd be raised and lowered. So in the lowered position it couldn't feed. When it was raised it could. So you needed to train the bird to peck the switch and then would receive a reward. This is the whole operant conditioning thing is quite long and complex. I guess it's probably not that in, of interest to to the HPR audience, though I'll happily talk more about it if anybody's interested. But um the birds most of them were able to learn this stuff quite effectively. Pigeons are not, I don't want to say they're stupid, because they're not. They're just not equipped with behaviour which is good for this type of thing. Their, their behaviour is all about flying and finding food from a height and, uh, and you know, they, they eat grains and seeds and stuff. So they're not the brightest, they're not as as clever as like crows and jackdaws and similar birds. 
Anyway, it would do this, and, and so there was a light behind these Perspex panels. When the light came on, the bird learnt that if it pecked the right colour, then it would um, get a reward. The box itself was made in the department, and it was u- it was made by the workshop, and they used a product called Handy Tube, which is, um, I don't know whether it still exists, though I did find a link to it. Square section steel tubes with jointing pieces that are that are metal with a plastic uh, outer layer. You could hammer them into the ends of the tubes and join them together in all sorts of configurations. Uh, you can take them out again too, but not not easily. It didn't fall apart. It held together really tight. But um, it's really good for for making this type of equipment. I believe I have a photo of this in the slides. The Skinner box, as it stood, just was a bunch of switches and lights and a motor to drive the uh, the feeding hopper. So in order to make it do the things you wanted, to say turn on a light, provide a reward when certain behaviour was uh, detected, you needed uh, something to, to program it. Now, these days, it'd be easy. You'd stick a Raspberry Pi on it, and the simplicity to do. But in those days, it wasn't anywhere near as easy. We used programmable laboratory equipment, which came from a company called Camden Im- Instruments Limited. This this was the, the company that I mentioned I contacted. And it consisted of a series of metal units, boxes, containing components, which were to be clipped to metal rods in a, in a rack. And it, they got their power through the metal rod, through the clips. I don't have any records of what power they needed, but I do have a brochure, PDF of a brochure from a later device that the company made, and it required 22 to 30 volts DC through the power rails, through a maximum of 50 milliamps. So it's not trivial. Maybe that's the source of danger that people were worried about. We we paid it no heed at the time, but if you'd had wet hands and grabbed the uh, the positive and negative, you'd you'd have got a shock. Whether it would have killed you, I don't don't know. If you had a weak heart, maybe it would. Anyway, the departmental workshop had constructed floor standing racks for these units so that you could get several rows into it. I have pictures of some of this stuff which I'm hoping to be able to include in the notes. And um, it looks like a 19-inch rack, actually. So I think they probably adapted a 19-inch rack at the end of the day. Don't remember that very well. Anyway, the boxes contained a variety of electronics. Many of them were logic gates, such as a simple AND and OR, and also inverters, so you could make NANDs and NOR gates. There were things like chart recorders and counters, and the whole principle of it was you you put a bunch of these together like a sort of lego set almost and you could connect the output of one to the input of another with a piece of wire the, the we had made up um, specific bits of wire using very flexible copper copper multi multi-core wire which had um, snap-on connectors press stud type things on them which fitted onto the the face of the units so you could do things like count the number of key presses or something like turn on the the such and such light or or keep a record of which 
of the two keys in the Skinner box had been pressed and, and you could trigger the raising of the, uh, the hopper. All of this could be done through this. So it's, it's like building your own computer in some respects. The bird's behaviour, I believe, was recorded on a paper chart. So there was a sort of time base with, with ticks on it to show when it did things. And I remember configuring this system to when the experiment was finished, which was something like after the number of rewards or number of key presses or something, turning on a red light. And I didn't actually stay in the room with it. It was a room dedicated to this kid. I was down the corridor in my office and I'd run, a, run some wires down the corridor and the light came on outside my office or in the office, I can't remember. I also made a... worked out how to do... I can't remember whether it was a flip-flop or an oscillator of some kind, which I guess the two are fairly similar. I don't remember much about this now, but the oscillation of this thing would be triggered when the experiment was over, and connected to it was a little speaker, so it would buzz, fairly low-level buzz series of clicks or something so uh, i i could i could even be asleep in my office which i wasn't but and this thing would be going beep 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 to say the thing was finished so i could go and change over to the the next bird in the in the sequence so uh, and of course all my data was being collected automatically so i mentioned camden instruments and uh, the fact that this sort of kit went out of favor because it was potentially dangerous I thought it was really cool. I, I was learning about logic and Boolean algebra and stuff in the context of computers and uh, having, a, having a sort of Lego set that let me do this was pretty cool. So leaving aside the research, I won't go into a lot of detail about what it was and why it was and what we did with it and stuff because I don't think it's really likely to be of interest here. But as one or two other personal anecdotes as a postgraduate student, you ended up being a demonstrator. A demonstrator is a term, which I think is a British Britishism for a more advanced student who's helping out with the teaching of undergraduate students. So that was all about assisting in lab sessions. And we were paid for it. We were paid reasonably well. It certainly seemed a pretty fair wage. So we were quite happy to do this we all we all ended up doing this you couldn't uh, you couldn't escape it <laughs> if you wanted to but most people were very keen to be the only downside of it was that you had to prepare yourself quite well for the sessions because you're going to be asked any sorts of questions and you didn't really want to be calling the uh, the main lecturer to uh, to answer them because was otherwise being paid for so in many cases the undergrads are being taught stuff that wasn't necessarily something we learned ourselves as undergrad. I don't remember all of the lab sessions we worked in over the years, but I do remember a few. I remember doing dissection lab for first-year students, so there was sort of classic dissect a frog, dissect a rat and stuff. Remember that we also did um, initial classes for the medical students, the medical school down the road, and they were the ones who made the most appalling mess of bits all over the place. I'm not sure if medical students are a special breed or what. We did microscope labs. I remember them being quite detailed because what you're doing there is you're looking at slides. The slides have been stained so you can identify the individual tissues or whatever you're looking at. And you need to find the relevant bit and make a drawing of it so you understand it. But using a, a microscope had its difficulties. First of all, 
to actually find the thing that you're looking for, given that you're moving a slide around with your, with your hands, and it's magnified a lot, and so the tiniest movement translates to a huge movement in the, in the viewfinder in the, as you're looking down the microscope. And so many people would go, oh, I can't see anything, and they'd wind the microscope down towards the slide to, to get it in focus, forgetting that it was quite capable of hitting the slide and crunching it up, which often did. The microscope was robust enough to deal with that. The slides suffered. This was a fairly common thing. We used to say to them, uh, if you need to do that, wind the lens down uh, by looking at it, not by looking through the eyepiece. Wind it down as low as possible. Then look in the eyepiece and wind it up. That way you can't crunch it. Don't ever wind it down when you're looking through this. Anyway, significantly large amounts, I should say. It was also involved in physiology labs. This was where we were looking at uh, animal physiology. Recently killed frogs, for example, or cockroaches were quite popular where you monitored nerve impulses with an oscilloscope. You had to learn about using an oscilloscope and teach people how to do it. And also, I seem to end up being the person who always caught the cockroaches. A tank full of these. <laughs> anyway, it's a technique. Statistics lab, I was, in, I was involved in the stats lab. Because as a biologist you need to do statistical tests on data, then I was involved in helping up with that and trying to explain what the statistical tests actually meant. That was quite hard work, getting my own head around what it meant. And finally, I was involved in the, some brain labs that my supervisor ran, where we went down to the medical school anatomy section, and uh, we had a sort of back room there where we had we each had a human brain to to uh, cut up and examine and draw and whatever, identify all the pieces, which was uh, it's a little bit slightly harrowing. Probably the most harrowing was going through the anatomy lab where there was rows and rows of, of slabs with with corpses, cadavers on them, and people cutting them up. But uh, you, you can get used to all sorts of things. Yeah, we had to learn quite a lot about the structure of the human brain more rapidly uh, than we had expected in order to do this course justice. It's, um, it's not a simple matter because brain tissue is just a sort of, especially after it's been preserved, tends to be a sort of uniform grey jelly-like material. So spotting where one one area ends and the next begins, it takes takes some, some experience and skill. There are tons of anecdotes I could say about the events and stuff. Of course, but I think it's it's probably going way outside the, the remit of HBR to do this, so I'll stop at this point. So, obviously, since I ended up working in computers, there was a, you will have gathered, there was a fair amount of access to computers as I was doing this uh, zoology. Um, one instance was using the computer graphics unit, which was a section of the uh, the main IT part of the university. So I had all these sheets of paper with plans of my arena, and I'd drawn animal tracks and stuff onto it from the video recordings, and I needed to turn these into coordinates for analysis. The computer graphics unit could help me, and they had a PDP-11 computer, 
which could be used for the, for the data capture and analysis. I didn't use that very much, though. The, but partic- the particular devices, a, a device I would use was called a, a DMAC digitizer and uh, made by a, a company called Dobby McInnes of Glasgow, thence the, the DMAC name. Now, this is an incredibly difficult thing, or has been an incredibly difficult thing to find much information about. They were they were fairly common around at that time, but but very little information has been preserved about them. I found a Stack Exchange article that I've re- referenced here, and um, it shows some information and, and points you at some pictures of this thing, but. Uh, not necessarily one I was using. And basically, it was a heavy glass-topped uh, box-like table thing. In my particular case, it was on some substantial legs where it could be tilted. So uh, it had a sort of uh, pivot underneath it, so you could tilt it for freeze of use. I think the top was maybe a meter square. I don't remember. Maybe I'm overestimating that. Um, at the it was glass topped, and under the transparent top was a space where an X and Y sensor moved about. The principle of this was that you placed a mouse or, or puck, wasn't wouldn't have been referred to as a mouse. Puck would have been the name. You on the table, and as it moved around, it would be followed by the X and Y device underneath. Usually, you would just move this puck, and then you'd press a button on it, it was connected with a piece of wire to the to the device itself. You'd press a button on it and the X and Y would, would search for it and find it and would then output the coordinates that they found that the puck had. And I think it had a, a Perspex window on it with, a, with crosshair so you could line things up quite precisely. This was used, this particular device was used quite a lot in the map map-making industry, I recall. But anyway, there is some information in my list of uh, links which might give you more information if you're interested. As this device normally operated, it had an eight-hole paper tape punch on it. So it would just punch the X and Y numbers onto that tape as you hit the button. But you could configure it to do all sorts of things. You could configure it to produce... Um, output in a continuous way as well. So sampling every so many sure distance or whether it was time based, I don't know, I never used that. Anyway, I would put my sheets on the table one at a time, use masking tape to hold them down, and then zero the whole thing to the corner of the picture. And then I could follow the, the track of the bird, produce a paper tape. The track of the bird could be traced I pressed the output button each point visited and the end product would be a paper tape. The graphics unit stopped providing this service during the period I needed it. I can't remember why. Maybe they had a lot of pressure for the for the, the equipment. I can't remember. But um, I found out through contact that there was a, a DMAC at the local hospital. The Christie Hospital, which is not very far from university, and I was able to go and use that to finish off my data capture. Just as a an aside, really, as I was working in the in a, an office in the animal house at uh, in the zoology department, 
I had a moderate-sized office. I didn't share it with anybody else for some reason. I can't remember why. Um, the There was a, a research group next door who was studying fish vision, and they had bought a mini-computer, which was a Data General Nova, which I've referenced in the links. I think it was a 1200. I think I've got a picture in my slides, which I hope hopefully will include. But... Um, it was, they were going to use it to run experiments in the, the next door lab. But it was initially set up in the office I was using, and they said, if you want to use it, go right ahead. The machine was a 16-bit basis, quite a, a large, you know, moderate-sized thing um, in a 19-inch rack. The, the, the memory of it was ferrite core, which gives you some idea of its vintage. I don't know how much memory there was, maybe 16 or 32K don't know. It did have paper tape reading capabilities and a punch. I'm pretty certain it had a teletype, otherwise how on earth would you do anything with it? How would you print anything? I don't have pictures of it, unfortunately. I remember there being a Fortran compiler in the form of uh, paper tape, which I remember experimenting with it. So to start the machine, you powered it up, of course. Then you had to enter a bootloader by hand using the switches on the front panel. Then, when you then, having typed that in, put that in through the switches, I can't remember how many steps there were, 10 or 12, maybe, maybe less, I don't know. Um, then, when you set that to run, uh, then it, you could make it load a loader program from paper tape, and then that loader could be used to load the compiler or program. There was no operating system, not on this one anyway, and uh, so it was just a case of loading this to load that to load that. And so you would develop a program which would run on the the, the sole thing running. So a bit like sort of Arduino-ish type, type things, I guess you'd say. These Just mentioned that for interest. I used the facilities, University of Manchester Regional Computer Centre, as I talked about in my last episode. And in particular, I mentioned the ICL-1906A. And I found there was a room of terminals terminals in the glass box monitor, the, the monitor with keyboard type thing. But there's also a lot of ASR33 teletypes, and these connected to various other computing facilities. The teletypes were connected to the 1906A, and the operating system on there called George, which I mentioned before. And I was able to access it and, and use it using the teletypes. I think there might have been... 12 or 15 of them in, a, in the room. It was a big room used for, for teaching, so it had a lot of equipment in it, but these were generally available to computer users. He used a an interactive part of the operating system called MOP, or MOP, Multiple Online Programming. So it's possible to prepare work on the ICL using this MOP, and then to submit it as a batch job to big uh, CDC 7600 and the version of George that they were using at UMRCC had been modified to allow this so they they had hacked on this. I'm going to talk more about George 3 and later ended up using it quite a lot. George 3 or George 4 and I just noted here that it's possible to run an emulation of George 3 on the Raspberry Pi. I've not done it. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure not sure I will, but uh, maybe. 
be, be worth it just to see some get some sort of idea of how how it works what what it does so there's another computer I used at UMRCC, but just as an, as an expl- exploration of what it could do. And this was the Cyber 72, another CDC computer. My memory of this machine is pretty hazy now. It might have been a Cyber 76. Perhaps the 72 was replaced by 76 at some point. I can't remember. I remember the vaguely recall Cyber 72 and 76. Maybe they had them both. This was a big setup. A lot of money had gone into it. Anyway, this machine had terminals with, with quality screens, with monitors and uh, um, good keyboards, unlike the uh, teletypes. And in particular, it offered a programming language called APL, which means a programming language. And it's a, it's a strange symbolic sort of language uh, where you can write quite complex mathematical expressions. Um, it didn't. It, it doesn't handle all of the, or didn't handle all of the symbols that were defined for APL. But there were compromises to make that work. And I, I tried using it to do some simple statistics, and found that you could write a really, really small program to do some quite powerful things. Never really took it any further than that. It didn't seem entirely appropriate to bring. Just mentioned that. Um, Money was an issue being a postgraduate. I had started my first year and paid for my first year myself with money saved from a year out working during that, which I mentioned in the last episode. I did manage to get some grant funding for one or two years, but this wasn't really enough. I managed to get a part-time job within the zoology department as a laboratory technician, so that helped with the funding. As a lab tech I was involved in setting up laboratory sessions but mostly I was the the departmental driver so I'd ferry students around from time to time pick people up from the station buy or collect things for the department and uh, had to go around a fairly Manchester's a fairly big city by UK standards so I got to learn my way around a fair bit of it and I just wanted to mention a few events that I recall being a driver. Uh, one was taking a fellow postgrad student to, who couldn't drive, and she wanted to collect freshwater mussels in a stream. We just happened to be right next to the Jodrell Bank radio telescope, so couldn't put a picture of that here just for uh, all time's sake. Somebody else I took to collect shellfish at Clandidno Bay in North Wales. That's a little bit further away from Manchester. But uh, it's an interesting day trip, as I recall. I don't think I've ever been back there since. Been to North Wales a bit. I had to go and collect maggots on a regular basis at local fishing supply shops. I come back with boxfuls of of uh, maggots all writhing. Around. I can't remember who who used them. And one, I think it was just the once, or maybe a couple of times, I was asked to go and collect dead gulls around one of the reservoirs in central Manchester. I think it was Audenshaw Reservoir. Somebody was researching parasites in these gulls. I came back with a van with, I don't know, half a dozen, ten dead gulls in the back. And as I was driving along, one that was apparently dead and had been picked up and put in the thing, uh, suddenly woke up and started flapping around in the back. It didn't last much longer 
think it was really sick. I remember going to catch, help to catch fish in lakes in the, possibly in the Peak District in Derbyshire, somewhere nearby. Um, we were catching perch, which were being used by the group that were doing study on fish vision. And I also remember being asked to go to a local abattoir where an arrangement had been made for me to pick up something like a couple of buckets full of cow's blood. Again, one of the parasitologists was uh, maybe it's for a lab session or something like that. Yeah, abattoirs are not my favourite places. Well, I had a few hobbies while I was a student at Manchester. One in particular was I was uh, trying to learn a bit about electronics. In particular, I wanted to own a calculator, and I'd seen the Sinclair Scientific in the newspaper adverts, and uh, it was a kit that you could build yourself. needed a bit of soldering, of course. I learned to solder at school, but in a very basic way, using what I found out is called a tinsmith's soldering iron. It's a big chunk of copper, sort of torpedo shape, on on a handle that can be heated in a gas flame. Uh, Then you just use that to melt solder. And we were building stuff out of tin plate, which is steel, I think, steel with a, with a layer of tin over the top. You could make joints with solder. Also, when I was younger, I'd done some soldering at home using my dad's electric soldering iron. Quite a primitive thing, as I recall, but it did the job. But around this time in Manchester, I bought myself an electric soldering iron, an Antex one, 25 watts, relatively small tip. And I also bought some other equipment to to help helps things out, particularly a little aluminium heat sink that you can clip onto whatever you're, you're soldering, which prevents the heat being transferred onto sensitive things, which was quite important with this uh, Sinclair Scientific, which is pretty small. There's a picture of it in the notes. Cost £9.95 uh, in a kit form. Seems a ridiculously small amount these days. Anyway, I got it built. One small mishap where some internal bit got melted a little bit. Just a little bit, not enough to damage it. But with the device, it was a bit of a disappointment, to be honest. It used reverse Polish to enter calculations. So you used, uh, instead of doing 2 plus 3, you put in 2, enter, 3, enter, plus, and then it uh, was adding it together. That That's not unusual. You find that in other contexts, in um, programming languages and that type of thing, and other more advanced calculators back. It didn't have a decimal point in the calculator. You had to put it in an exponential notation in order to out. And when you did things like multiplication then and division, you'd find that the device was actually doing repeated additions. It was quite clever in the sense that a fair bit had been squeezed out of a really tiny little device. But uh, it was it was not it was a bit disappointing that it would take a long time, particularly if you tried to run functions like log or anti-log or sine and cosine and stuff like that. It, these are all iterative as well, so the calculator was extremely slow when you wanted it to do anything. Typed stuff in and then sat back and wait for it to come back with an answer. Still, it was an interesting voyage. I'm still quite pleased that I tried it, even though my £9.95 didn't get me a huge lot. There's... I put quite a lot of information about this in the the links. So if you're interested, you can go and have uh, some of the background of this device. So the last thing I want to say is that uh, towards the end of this process, which had taken four years working on this PhD, 
some of which had come out of my pocket, some had come from a, a grant. After doing this for four years, then, I was strongly wondering whether what I was doing was getting me any. I realised that the research topic that I was following was not really going to go anywhere very much. And yeah, I also realised that I'm not much of a researcher. I don't have that necessarily the patience. I can think now, 45 years on, of ways I could have solved some of those problems. But at the time, I was not mature enough or able to think clearly enough to uh, to make much of it. My experimental animal was not ideal. Pigeons are great and all, but they're not all that bright. We were asking them to differentiate between different values of food quantities and that type of thing and i think to a lot of in a lot of the environment that doves and pigeons live that's not really a big consideration and they they don't operate in as individuals as much as in flocks you see a flock of pigeons landing on a field to um to go through looking for seeds and that is a competitive element and we didn't pay much attention to anyway that's outside the the subject that we're really dealing with here i had learned stuff about electronics quite a lot of biology by doing the demonstrations and that sort of stuff that's also i was interested in biology was researching reading about the, the subject quite a lot i also picked up a fair bit of computer science just uh, by being uh, involved with uh, the computers that were available so i thought that rather than struggling to finish this PhD, it might be best to leave, see if I could get a job, preferably in IT, and uh, possibly finish off the PhD away from the, away from Manchester, though that never came to be. But I did get a job in IT and um, moved away. And I'll tell you more about this in the next episode, which I hope won't be in another five years or whatever it was. So that's it. I hope you found that uh, interesting, at least in part. Okay then, bye-bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.